0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're going to be in Exodus 28, 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that should be fine. There should be a Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. Uh, Feel free to use that Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible that you call your own, consider that a gift from us to you. But uh, if you have your Bibles and you're you're in Exodus chapter 28, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. And just as a forewarning, we will be skipping ahead to 29. So we're going to be in Exodus 28, 1 through 5, and then we're going to be skipping to the last few verses in Exodus 29. So keep your little page mark for that. All right, Providence, hear the word of the Lord, Exodus 28, verse 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron your, uh, Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make: a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. We're going to go ahead and be turning to Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46. 29:43 reads, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and, we, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated.
1: Good morning to you. Good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. If it is your first time, we're glad that you're here. And we hope you enjoy yourself with us this morning. Before we jump into the text, I wanted to just mention a little bit about where we've been before we jump into where we're going. And we've been through working through the book of Exodus all year long. And in the fall, we've been talking about uh, Moses going up onto the mountain on Mount Sinai and being delivered, not just the law, but also being delivered the pattern of the tabernacle. And we're making a little bit of a shift here in the text as Moses is being given not architectural plans for the tabernacle, but now he's given specific instructions about the garments that the high priest will wear. This is the first time in your Bible that you see there's going to be a line of the high priests that's not going to go through Moses. It will go through his brother Aaron, same tribe, but it'll go through different sons. You know, up to this point, Moses in many ways has been operating as the priest of Israel. And now Aaron's going to be consecrated as the priest of Israel. So we're talking a little bit about the garments, a little bit about that consecrating process for Aaron. And I just wanted to make mention of this before we pray. Um, it's impossible to cover everything that happens in these two chapters uh, in one Sunday, two Sundays, probably a, a sermon series. There's just so much that's going on here with all of the fine details, some, some similar to what's happening in the tabernacle. You know, um, we just kind of uh, take it for granted as you're reading through it. And, and I know it's very easy just to kind of get bogged down, but everything that God tells Moses, he tells him particularly to follow a specific pattern because it's a, as the title of the series, it's a heavenly, it's a, it's a earthly reality, earthly shadow, heavenly reality, right? Uh, what's happening in the tabernacle, what's happening in the priesthood, what's happening in every garment that he wears is a preparation for Christ to completely fulfill this in substance, not just shadow, that Christ really lives this. So something like the breastplate of judgment, Christ literally becomes the judge. He literally takes our judgment, you see. So there's a substance to what the shadow that Aaron's wearing is. And so I say all that to say, it's simply inexhaustible for us to just go one-to-one here, unless we were willing to take about a year to do it. And so I I don't want that to be discouraging to us, because what I think is going to happen this morning, and here's my hope, is that you are going to, we're going to have a really good meal at the Word of God. I think there's a lot in here that we're going, to, we're going to glean from, and I want to focus on two major things. One is, how did Christ fulfill in substance the high priestly garments perfectly? Okay, so that's chapter 28. And then, I want to, we're going to move to the New Testament, John chapter number 17. For those of you who are familiar with this, this is what's, what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And you know, 15, 16, 17, if you've ever gone through John, it's a large section of scripture. Usually you'll have, you know, red letters littered in with illustration and kind of telling you 15, 16, 17 is just all red. Jesus just speaking to his disciples only. And I want to go to 17, which is called the high priestly prayer and answer the question, what does it mean for us? So it's one thing, and I hope that you've caught this, As if you've been here with us through Exodus, hopefully you've ga- gained this. The Old Testament is not merely uh, helpful, it's essential. I hope that you've caught that, Everything that Christ did and all the connections that are from old to new gives you great confidence that the Bible, although written thousands of years apart by multiple authors, has a continuity like no other book does because it is inspired by God himself. And that's what we've been hoping to do. You know, it's really difficult to understand in fullness what it is that Christ has accomplished unless you know the Old Testament narratives. But I also want to make sure that we, don't, we answer the question, but what should we do about it? Beyond just being confident that it's true, it should change us. It should transform us. And so that's what I want to pray for. I want to pray for those two things. God, give us great confidence that your word's true, that Jesus is who he said he was, and then secondarily, and help us to know what we should do with that. Because my guess is is you're not going to change your garments tomorrow. You're not going to stop going to Kohl's and start shopping at, you know, the kosher market for, you know, your, your new clothes, your new turbans, you know, this, we need to know what does this mean for us? So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, I'm just humbled by your word. We're so grateful that we can come now. Help us to set aside this moment, these next hour or so in our hearts that we might expect to meet you here because you have promised that your presence is here with us. Help us not only to gain confidence in your word that Every line is true, but also help us to know what to do with that truth and to be transformed by it. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would stand forth from the scripture and speak your words directly to our hearts by the power of the Spirit. And in so doing, I pray that we would see you with the eyes of our hearts to know that you are truly the high priest mediating the better and new covenant even now. Help us, my God. Help us to see that for what it means. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a couple of things. I'm going to read chapter number 28 verses 1 through 5 again. And the reason we chose just 1 through 5 is because it kind of gives you an overview before it goes into the detail of the ceremonial priestly garments. Now, I want you to remember the high priest was the one, the only one, who was consecrated and called to go into the Holy of Holies, which we've talked about, which, where, what resided there? The Ark of the Covenant, right? With the mercy seat. Once a year, he would go in there and say, God said, I'm going to meet you there above the mercy seat. And there would be this communion between the high priest and God himself, which is incredible to think about. But the high priest is the only man that can go in there and only through what through the blood of sacrifice, It's the only way he had to make his way through okay, into the, the the holy place. And then if he's going to cross through the veil into the most holy place or the holy of holies, he would have had to do the ceremonial rites in the holy place with the, the lampstand and the ceremonial shoe bread. And only by the blood of the lamb was he going to go in. So much so that you're going to see that a part of the high priest's ceremonial garb is that he had to have a bell that was around his belt loop, So that if he went into the presence of God and he did not follow all of these rites, ceremonial rites, and particularly the blood sacrifice, that when you stopped hearing the bell ring, you knew he died. So they'd have a rope around him and they'd pull him on out of there, you know. That's how serious it was. So let's read verses 1 through 5 again. Let's go through the, the priestly garments. Chapter 28, God says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So Aaron will be the high priest, the high priesthood will only go through his bloodline of his sons, but the tribe of Levi, Levi here will become a priesthood tribe, okay, which will be significant for the rest of the Old New Testaments. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. That line is regularly repeated, they should be for glory and for beauty. I wish we could spend a lot of time on that, but why are those two things really important to God, you know? Verse three, you shall speak to all the skillful who I, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And I read that, I just knew that that would not have been me. <laughs> the spirit of skill to do what he's about to say. I was like, some of you are that? That ain't me, all right? I got another, other skills. It does isn't these skills. Okay, verse four. These are the garments that they shall make. So here's kind of an overview. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, and his son shall serve me as priests. They shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. So let's work through these in order, and I'm only—I'm just going to use the order that's listed here, but it's not necessarily the order that he would have put. The high priest would have put these on. So the first thing that you're going to see here, and this is in verses 15 through 29, you can read it later. The breastplate is described, the breastplate of the high priest. This would have gone over the robe, over the ephod apron. The breastplate would have been put on over that. And the Bible records that the breastplate of the high priest was a breastplate of judgment, and it was to have four rows of three stones totaling 12. Each of these unique jewels would be put on the high priest's chest and they were to engrave, each stone were to be a representation of each of the tribes of Israel. And they were to engrave the names of the tribes of Israel on his chest, on the breastplate of judgment. The second is the ephod, which would have gone underneath this. And it was a sort of apron that went around the shoulders underneath the the breastplate. And the unique thing about the ephod was that on the shoulders, there were two onyx stones, And on these two onyx stones, they also had to engrave the six names and six names of the tribes of Israel on the shoulders of the ephod, okay? And the reason for this is explicitly stated in Exodus. It says the high priest is to bear the names of the children of Israel on his heart and on his shoulders as a way to represent that he is their representative before God, and that he's bringing the people before God in himself through sacrifice to stand before the Lord. Okay, that's what the high priest was to do. Now you're going to see later on that the interesting thing is that Aaron himself had to also make sacrifices for himself and for all of his garments because they were unholy. And so he also had to purify himself through sacrifice. Now, this is something that we do not see in Christ because Christ has no need of a sacrifice for himself. You know, it's interesting when your priests need priests, but Jesus didn't need a priest. He was the true high priest. Under all of this, there was a robe, and this robe was of one piece, seamless, so that it would not be torn. This was very key, so that it would not be torn. This robe of righteousness is kind of the theme. The idea was that it should be unbroken, should be pure, it should be without blemish. And then there was a turban and a sash. The only thing that's mentioned about the sash is that it was for glory and for beauty. The turban was a head covering, and this is really interesting, it had a gold plate that was to be on the forehead of the high priest, and on that gold plate it was to be engraved, holy to the Lord. That was to be engraved on Aaron's forehead in gold, holy to the Lord. And he would wear this as he performed the functions of the high priest. Now, as a people, and I am chief among uh, the sinners in this category, okay? So I'm not, I'm not coming down on anyone. We have become uh, less and less over time of a ceremonial people. And so it's really easy to look, even if you were to Google image this, to look at something like this and lose the significance because we just think, why do people wear funny clothes, you know? This is, I mean, this is how we think, you know, we don't really try to see the significance because, again, we're less and less ceremonial and we're more and more catty about things. We don't really do that. Oh, it's not a big deal. You're making too much of yourself. And, the, and there is a, there's some merit to that because sometimes ceremony is about vanity. The ceremony is about pride. I think that's the reason that we tend to lean that way because we don't like that idea of, oh, here's that guy. But I would say our culture is ceremonial about some things. It's just typically it's ceremonial about the things that are catty. You know, it's like, I don't know if you ever watched the Academy Awards or anything, but it's not exactly, you know, wonderful. But I want us to lean into this to see there's something that's being said here. There's something that's being communicated there that's supposed to be holy and sacred. It's supposed to give us all. These are tangible expressions of something that's intangible. That's what symbols are. You know, when you give a symbol of something, when you give a medal to a soldier... It's a tangible expression of something that you cannot quantify like heroism or courage. How do, you sh- how do you say this man is worthy of honor because of his courage? Well, you can't bottle courage, so you put a medal on him so that everybody can see in that symbol courage, right? That's what's happening here with the high priestly garments. It's trying to, in some ways, communicate something to us that we should lean into. So let's talk a little bit about Christ's fulfillment. Christ's fulfillment of these things. The stones on the ephod and on the breastplate, those are the two onyx stones on the shoulders on the ephod and the 12 stones on the breastplate, they had the purpose of symbolizing the priest's role in representing the people of Israel before God. But we need to ask the question, but representing them for what? Well, the priest brought the people of Israel's guilt before God, acknowledging it as guilt, and he wore it on his own chest, right? Right? He brought their names. You think of this. Their their names are engraved on the chest and on the shoulders. He's bringing their names up before God. When the priest were to bring the children of Israel and their names before God, he's bringing them near for forgiveness, for guidance, but most importantly, for atonement and communion must make at one that which has been separated through the blood and bring communion again, this idea of a dwelling place with God by the Spirit, that God will be with his people and he will be their God and they will be his people. This idea of union, covenant. The priestly function was for the people to know God and to dwell with God. And he was to come before the presence of God and then he was to come back and he was to mediate that presence to the people. Now what we know is that the Bible tells us Christ in his perfect life, vicarious death and glorious resurrection has become our eternal high priest in the heavens. That the temple system was abolished because Christ's own body was destroyed. That's why he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The destruction of Christ's body represents the destruction of an old system, the destruction of the entirety of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that now we have one high priest, one sacrifice, once for all, and by faith in Christ, all of this is no more. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and I want to read to you verse 13. And, and maybe we'll read a little bit around it, depending. As you're turning there, if you're unfamiliar with Revelation, Revelation is John, the disciple of the Lord Jesus, the last one alive. All of the other disciples had been martyred for their faith. And John did not die because they didn't try to harm him. It wasn't for lack of trying that John wasn't martyred. They tried to boil him alive according to tradition and they dropped him in a vat of burning oil and they pulled him, they pulled him back up and he was still alive. And so they were just so sick of this guy because they couldn't kill him. They tried to poison him according to tradition in the prison cells and it didn't work. Not that he didn't drink it. He did and it didn't work. So they sent this guy to the island of Patmos And on the island of Patmos, he receives a vision, and he writes this vision down. One of the most unique things about this vision, apart from the apocalyptic imagery that we get throughout Revelation, is that John sees the Lord Jesus risen, ascended, resurrected Christ. And we get a picture of him that he describes. And I want to read it to you because I think it's important. Revelation chapter 1, and you know what, let's just start in verse 12. So there's a voice that's been speaking to John that's to this point, but he has yet to turn to see the the one who's speaking. Verse 12 tells us that he turns. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining at full strength. Now John, seeing the risen and ascended Christ in all of his glory, He gives us these descriptors, and I just want to bring to you some of the correlations we see between what the high priest was supposed to wear and what we see Christ wearing in his eternal high priestly role as he's mediating the new covenant for us. He stands among the seven golden lampstands, which we know that these represent, because later on the Revelation directly tells us, these represent... The churches, the seven churches that he's about to write to. Now, seven would have been an important number because seven means completion, meaning if he's standing amongst the seven golden lampstands, the church, it's the totality of the church that Christ stands in the midst of. Now, I want you to think about this. The high priest's entire role was so that we would dwell with God, and here you have Christ, and where is he dwelling? In the midst of the lampstands, and guess what's in the most holy place in the tabernacle? The menorah, which is what? Seven lights. Here we have the Christ. And he's standing amidst two, you and me. We don't just say that as a coy children's book thing when we say, oh, Christ is here among us, where two or three are gathered. You know what? It's factual. This is what John sees whenever his eyes are open to the spiritual realm. He actually sees there is the living and risen Christ amongst the church, dwelling with him. He needs no turban, Christ needs no head covering because his hair is what? White as snow. Why would that be, No, apart from this being, you know, like the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the White, you know, why? Why white is snow? It represents the perfection of his person. No need for a covering for his head because he is holy and pure. Remember what was on the turban, holy to the Lord. Does Christ need this? No, he's not holy to the Lord because he's covered by something else. His very person is perfect. He is holy to the Lord. He is holiness incarnate. If you read through in Exodus chapter number 18, you'll see that they have what's called the Urim and the Thummim, which is really interesting. I wish I had time to talk about it. I don't. But the Urim and the Thummim was some unknown object that was attached to the ephod in the high priestly robe. And basically when the high priest would come before God and he would need an answer about a judgment that he could not ascertain, he couldn't figure out what was right or wrong or guidance or direction, he would pull out the object of the Urim and the Thummim and and what they knew is that somehow God would speak to them in this interaction. It's really interesting. You can see it about three or four times in your Old Testament that it happens. But I want to notice here that there is absolutely no mention of it when they see the resurrected and the risen Christ. Why? He needs no Urim and Thummim because the Bible records his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees and he knows all. There's never a time where the high priest has to, our eternal high priest has to say, I'm not sure where we should go. I'm not sure what should happen. I'm not sure the direction I need for my church. His eyes pierce all. He sees everything. He knows everything. He is perfect wisdom. (laughs) And that's how John sees him. From his mouth comes the perfect, double-edged sword of God's word. He speaks with all authority. He speaks with all wisdom. The priests of Israel would soon fail the children of Israel and lead them into gross idolatry. In fact, as Moses is getting this very pattern, the high priest is down the mountain creating a golden calf, just giving you a little bit of foreshadowing for what all those priests are going to do. But then we have our eternal high priest. From his mouth comes the word of God. perfect authoritative and pure. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in the fire. This illustrates that it is Christ alone that can stand before the very presence of God the Father and not be consumed. Remember that Moses, he said, take off your shoes, Moses, for the place that you're standing is holy ground. In some ways, you know, the mountain of fire, you gotta think the mountain's smoking, and here Moses has to do what? Try to go up barefoot. You gotta think, Jesus has got burnished bronze feet, meaning he's made the trek many times, This is a common place for him to be because he does what? He mediates for you. He intercedes for you daily in the presence of God. And then finally, his face shines with greater glory than Moses because his ministry is more perfect than his. So remember, Moses came down the mountain and he had to wear a veil. You remember that? Because he didn't want to blind the people of Israel with how glorious his face is. But John says when he sees the Lord, the risen Christ, he says his face was shining more than the sun at full strength. Now, I want to go through some of these garments. I want to talk about Jesus' function as the high priest. You know, the, you have the, the bearing of the names. Jesus himself bore our names on his heart before the Father. As Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, he brought the names of all of those who believe before the Father as a remembrance forever that they would be forgiven and they would be atoned for. Your confidence before God that your sin is atoned for is that Christ has brought your name before the Father and all the sin that you will commit, Christ bled and died for. This is not an encouragement of lasciviousness. It's an invitation to worship. He knows you and has brought his own life, his own sacrifice, his own blood before the Father and he bore your name. So for everyone who is in union with Christ by faith, you are brought near to the very presence of God through him. See, this is what was happening whenever they bore the names of the children of Israel is there's a representation. This is what Christ is doing. He's bringing you into the very presence of God. And he can only do so the same way the high priest did through the shedding of blood. Except this time, it's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. There's a scene in in the story of the crucifixion where Christ is... He's beaten, he's mocked, he's scorned, and he's walked up to Golgotha. And they strip him completely of all of his clothes. They strip him naked before they put his cross and lift him up from the earth. And there's a moment in the book of John chapter 19, you can turn there later, verses 23 and 24, that the Bible records specifically, and I think it's specific for a reason, that the soldiers choose, let's not tear this garment into pieces amongst us and each of us can use it as a but let's cast lots so that one of us can get his robe and the bible records in verse 24 that it was a seamless robe christ was wearing the high priestly robe that night now this is no small thing because if you remember at the trial the high priest was never to rend this if he were to rend this it would have been blasphemy he would have been breaking god's law to rend this garment and not only do the soldiers not rend it, but just a few hours before when Caiaphas had asked Jesus if he was the son of God, and Jesus said, you say that I am, Caiaphas tore his robes. And he said, blasphemy. So in the same way that Caiaphas is saying, I'm not the high priest, here we have Christ being stripped of his clothes, and by God's sovereignty, the soldiers won't even tear his robe. And he's crucified without clothes on the cross. This only validates his role as the high priest, and even though he was stripped of his robe, I want to make mention of this. No earthly power could strip Christ of the robe he wore that was not with you couldn't see with eyes. The righteousness of Christ was perfect, so you can't strip him of that. He had it all along. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every every way, and yet he was without sin, clothed with the perfect righteousness of God Himself. Jesus didn't wear a turban on his head. All he wore was a crown of thorns. And yet we know that Jesus was chosen by God for this very role. Because again, God wielding his sovereign power, he has Pilate to write above Jesus' cross. This is the king of the Jews. In other words, the chosen one of the Jews. Right above Jesus' head. But Jesus needed no garments to enter into the Holy of Holies, no blood sacrifice for his own sin because he himself was perfect. And yet he also came into the holiest place. I want you to check this out. The high priest was supposed to wear this in many ways for his own protection. Jesus instead comes without this. And as he's on the cross, he is absorbing the very wrath of God that you and I deserve. He's taking the brunt end of that judgment on his own shoulders. I want you to be reminded of the ephod, the two stones that lay on the shoulders. The book of Isaiah says it like this, surely he has borne our iniquities and carried our sorrows. He bears your name and all that comes along with it on his shoulders into the Holy of Holies because he loves you. But what's born with that is your guilt and your shame. And yet he he does this. When I was in student ministry, I would go to different conferences and I would hear youth pastors, you know, they would, uh, you know, preach a sermon about if you deny me before others, I will deny you before my father, you know, and that's a really intense scripture. And you can imagine how powerful this gets, you know, especially in a youth ministry setting, you know, you're just, I'm ready to get resaved. But this word picture gives you so much of more understanding of this. It's that Christ has already come and he's bore your name before the father and you did not deserve that. So when we go out into the world, we bear Christ's name. He does deserve this. The inversion of this is a great travesty. He has already borne your name despite the fact that along with your name came a lot of sin and shame and guilt and burden. He bore that and the penalty for it so that he could make you na- a new name that he's giving you. And so now he sends you out with his name on your chest, his name on your shoulders. That's why he can say something like, my burden is light. It's not as heavy as your burden was. All of this Christ accomplished for us because his desire was Exodus chapter 29. I want to reread what Scott read. Exodus chapter 29, verses 43 through 46. This is the end of the consecration pattern. God gives us an indication as to why he wants the priesthood. Verse 43, "'There I will meet with the people of Israel,' and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and also his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. Here's the key. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is why. Christ did all of this that we might have a dwelling place with him, that we might be with him so that mankind would know the Lord and in so doing have eternal life. Turn with me to John chapter 17. This is where we're going to camp out for the rest of the time. John 17, and we'll close here. This is what's called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. This would be Either on the eve of, or very close to, the night before he's crucified, he speaks in such terms of finality here that it's hard for me to even understand or quantify. Because he says, "My work is done." Before he even goes to the cross, there's something about that that just shocks me. Because the, we always think the apex of the work is apex of the work is on the cross. Christ is so committed to dying for us that it's as though it's it's already done. He's already this is going to happen. He says, I've done everything you wanted me to do, Father, because that's how committed he is to dying for us. There was never a moment where he was going to come down, say, I'm calling it off. And here he prays over his disciples. And this is a it's not that I don't think Jesus never prayed over his disciples before this. This is something unique, though. Something's happening here. Because the manner in which he prays gives us at least all of the commentators, because you can pick up almost any Bible you have in the room, and it'll have the same exact... Connotation at the top, at the title, it's a high priestly prayer. So let me read through it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Listen to this line. And this is eternal life. That they know you the only true God. What does that sound like? Isn't that the purpose of the priesthood? And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Those are interconnected. No way to know him unless you know Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus can confidently say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. Think about the tabernacle. There's one gate. There's one way. Only the priest goes if he bears your name. There's only one way to know the one true God. Everything, Every other God in the Egyptian uh, pantheon in Exodus is a false God. Every other God the world offers is a false God. There's one true God and there's one way and his name is Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. And the reason for that is because of the high priesthood. There's only one way. When God came down and descended on Sinai, he's saying, this is the only way that you're going to come into my presence. This is not exclusionary. This is not bigoted. This is God opening a way for you, the only way for you. The invitation. You don't get an invitation to a Christmas party and say, how dare they? How dare they send the address? Well, what do you, where do you want to go then? Do you want to go to the Christmas party or do you want to just drive around all night? Here we go. Verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people. Oh, here we go. See? He brings our names before God, and then he manifests that name, that wonderful name, the name that's above every name, to the people. This is the mediating presence of God. The ones that you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and they have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world I want you guys to catch this theme. I'll try to say this as short as I can. It seems like Christ is saying, I'm coming to you, Father, and I'm going to be I've already accomplished the earthly work. I'm going to go up there to do the heavenly work. And I'm sending them even as you have sent me to do the earthly work here that I have been doing. He's consecrating a priesthood, you and me. That's what he's doing. Even as I have been sent, I'm sending them. Even as I have been consecrated, consecrate them. He's consecrating the disciples. Now you may be saying, okay, court, that's all fine and good. You had 12 tribes of Israel, you have 12 apostles. Wait, listen to what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guess who that is? That's you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you've given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I'm going to end right there. I wish that we had tons more time but I want to read that last sentence which is at the very heart of the priesthood of Christ. I in them and you in me that they may be become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So first we have this union that's happening, which we all talked about with the high priest, right? He goes in there to do what? Make atonement, atonement. There's been a separation between us and God. He's bringing that back together. There's a union between the people of God and their God again, and it's through the blood. This union is through the priest. Okay, he mediates this and then he goes out and he shares that with the rest. There's supposed to be a union amongst the people of Israel. The church is the same way. We can't have unity with each other unless we first have unity with God, okay? The union that we have one with another is a contingent unity upon our unity with God. This only happens through the blood of Christ, and there's love we have for each other because of the love that Christ has for us. But I want to really focus on the purpose. The purpose for this is so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's hard to quantify that statement unless unless you understand the love that the father has for the son. If you're a parent in the room, you can kind of start, right? But you're only scratching the surface in human terms. If you're a parent in the room, think about the love you have for your child. Multiply that times an infinity number this is the love the Father has for the Son. John 17 is going to go on, and Jesus is going to say, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he just said that the purpose of the gospel is so that the world may know that the Father loves you like that. You catching that? Now, that could be really sappy, but I want you to understand, this is a covenantal love. This is a hard-to-describe, unimaginable type of love. Whenever the Bible says God has a jealous love over you, you need to catch this drift. The love he has for you is powerful. So powerful, in fact, that Jesus was willing to make it ache into the love that they have for each other in the Trinity. That's the heart of the gospel. God's love for his children, so much so that he would die so much so that the father would send the son to die and the son would say, I lay my own life down. That's how much the love extends. And so if you're loved in that way, if you're loved by God in that way, how does that shape you this morning? If you're loved by God so much that he's giving you that invitation into the holiest of his presence, all of this is about nearness, people. It's about coming near to him. And he's drawing you. He's inviting you. And you can't help but feel that moment that Paul's on the road to Damascus when he says, Paul, Paul, while I persecutest thou me, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads? You have God goading you into his presence. Is it, is it becoming difficult for you to fight against me drawing you? When will you stop fighting me as I draw you? Do you want to keep fighting against the goads? Where I'm leading you is the place of the most deep, meaningful valuable, inexpressible, glorious love that the universe has to offer. And that is in the presence of God. You'll never felt more, you will never feel more loved than when you really experience this. You'll never know love. This is what 1 John's all about. You don't know love until you know God's love for you. So why he talks about it so much and sounds like a sappy, you know, 80s songwriter. See what kind of love the father has for us that we would be called the children of God. And so we are. And so this morning, the practical application of the priesthood, although there's many, at its very heart is worship. It's drawing near when you're invited. It's not kicking against the pricks, but drawing near into the presence of the God who loves you. And I want to pray that for you, that as we worship and as we sing, it's not just mere words on your tongue, but that you experience the love of God in Christ for you as he bids you come. Come into my presence. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm humbled when I read the words of our Lord Jesus praying over us as our priest. I'm humbled that his desire for us is to be one. And his desire for us is to experience the love. The self-same love that you had for your son in eternity past. Father, I wish that I could express it in words, but I ask now that you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, that you would translate, communicate, pour out your love by the power of your spirit this morning as we sing, as we take of your supper. Help us to to receive the love that you have for us as we meditate on the cross as we meditate on the resurrection. Help us to receive the love that you've poured out. And in so doing, my God, help us to be transformed. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.